Welcome to part two of this week's podcast. Again, at the end of the day, it depends. We don't know which is harder to walk into, the therapist's office or the bishop's office. But if we want to be the bishop or the leader or the friend whose office or home or Mm -hmm. relationship is easiest to walk into, we have to assume best intentions. And that includes we got to overcome the the reaction of being surprised, disgusted, angry, or do you have any idea what you've done or disappointed because everything, and this is why these are impossible callings, right? Yeah. Everything you do, they will project on God because you represent Jesus Christ, right? Yes. And you know, the, we throw that phrase around. What does that actually mean? It could be debated, right? But for somebody to even sit outside that office, walk in there and then be met with what they expect is you're going to be really angry, frustrated. I'm angry at myself, right? And then we project our feelings on them, right? And so, assuming best intentions, a lot of it is just, I'm just going to listen. Yeah. Right? And, yeah. And, and be in that place of suffering that they're in. Even, and I've heard this where some leaders or bishops are resistant to say, I'm so sorry. Yes. Because you did this to yourself. Well, that goes back to that. Cause then if I do that, I'm condoning their yeah. bad behavior. Yeah. Then they're going to just this do it all the time. They're going to go willy nilly. And yeah. Yeah. And that, no, thank you for saying that. And I think about, I can think of one person in particular that this guy, I mean, talk about financial security check, career job. He wants check the kids, the family, everything, but he was struggling with, uh, again. And I even, I don't know if you notice, I say turning to pornography is an unhealthy coping mechanism because if you look at pornography addiction, it isn't even a, that's not in the diagnosis. Yeah, that's a therapist. That's not, not a therapy thing, thing right? No. Yeah. So people turn to unhealthy coping mechanisms. That one gives you a dopamine rush. And so your brain's going to keep going back for it anyway. That's a whole other thing. But this guy was, we were making some significant progress. Then he would have a setback. Notice I didn't say relapse because that has a lot of triggering uh, vibes to it as well. Right. <laughs> But he would have a setback and they would come in and he would have his head hung so low. And I finally at some point had to say, hey, is that for me? Like, do you want me to like, go? oh, man, you look really sad. I said, I'll do it. But <laughs> can we just get to the part where you're good? And then let's just and I say on my pornography recovery group program that happened. Don't beat yourself up. Noted. And then let's uh, let's try to avoid a yeah. bender. Let's review the game film. And what am I pretending not to know? And now let's turn to all the healthy. Yeah, things. And that's because there's this concept in. Both sides of the desk do it, right? Where we put energy behind an yes. event that happened, right? Mm-hmm. Sin has happened. And this maybe ties into this cultural norm we have of like really propping up the concept of reverence. Like I have to act a certain way in oh, a church be- so building right. or I am being irreverent, therefore offending God. And so if sin is put before me, I must, I must. scoff and dismiss and be frustrated, right? <laughs> Okay, I'm being, so and we put energy good. behind it, whether it's the the leader or the yeah. therapist could do this too, right? Or the individual. And we can just say like, okay, it happened. And where do we go from here? Right. Okay. So my emotion of humor is going nonstop. <laughs> so I'm just going to lay that foundation out before my next comment. So there was a, I worked with a number of people from a particular stake and that stake president. And I know I'm assuming good intentions. And I really do mean that because there's a reason why a leader says the things they do, you know, they, they want to help, yeah. but they may not know what they don't know. Even and when so, they say the stupidest thing they could ever say, they really are trying let me, to let help. Let me tell yeah. you, okay. Yeah. You've got a list. And you have to, and you have to give me the whole audio file now. <laughs> I want the world to hear this. You can edit this out of yours. I want to keep this <laughs> okay, in mind. All right. But I would hear at one point, somebody came in and he said, yeah. And then my state president said, you know, I don't really like you, but I know somebody must. So you must be worth, you know, saving. 
And I this leader said that to a person, a person sitting in front okay. of me. Uh-huh. And I thought, honestly, I thought, I don't think he really said that, but I can't say that to the guy. You know, I hear these stories. Don't and yeah, half of them really like, hard, right? I don't know if that happened yeah. that way. So then, uh, I don't know, three, four months, I got another person in my office and they're like, and then I was talking to my state president and he's like, you know, I don't really like you. And I was like, what stake are you? <laughs> <laughs> so then, no. and then fast forward and it was like three or four other times, three other people. And so I knew that that was kind of this person's line. And I understood that he was trying to say, wow, I'm not getting a vibe, but you are worth working on as if that was going to make the guy go, oh, okay, this guy doesn't like me, but he's willing to work with me. That must mean I'm of some sort of worth, right? So the reason I say that is this, when you talk about this uh, energy or this vibe, when I got to the point where when people, the next second or third guy telling me the story, I would say, oh, okay, where's that in the scriptures again? And then Jesus saith unto them, I don't really like you very much, you know? (laughs) I don't I don't think it's there. Third John, you know? fourth John. I, 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 yeah, <laughs> I, I would say everything's in Corinthians and Paul must have said it, right? But but it, the reason I use that and I know I'm using humor and all that stuff is like your concept about energy is so true. And that's where I feel like someone comes into me and they feel like they have to put off this vibe of, hey, man, I'm sorry. I was like, okay, cool. Yeah. So now what do we want to do? Yeah. You know, because I feel like that's, the, yeah. Yeah. And that's the interesting concept of, again, walking into a therapist's office or bishop's office, regardless of what office it is, they're walking in there with a certain type of energy. Yes. And you have the power to diffuse it yes. and be like, okay, that happened. But did you know, I just love you. Like, yeah. and I'll sit in this, like, if you need to come 10 times more back to this office and just sit with me, like, I'll be here. Like yeah. set that appointment. I'm there. And then it's just like, oh wait, I am acceptable. And like, my needs do matter. And yeah. And, yeah. and I think I've said this to you before, but you know, then I'll have a guy that will, he'll have some traction, some progress. And he comes in, he's like, man, I, I, I wasn't doing, I stopped using the tools and I had another setback. And they almost look at me like, so do you want to just go ahead and tell me like, oh, I've never seen someone do that before. You must be really broken. So now just go and do and don't worry. You know, I cannot help you. And I feel like, well, no, that's not not a thing. And I feel like that's where people do think that, yeah, but if I don't do everything perfect for the bishop, the therapist or whatever that is, then I must be this horrible person. And so once I tell them that I didn't do this, then they're going to just say, okay, well, yeah, you actually are pretty broken. So, uh, you know, it's pretty helpless. So... Yeah, nothing I can do here. <laughs> yeah. And I just feel like sometimes people are almost used to that vibe. And so I think as a bishop or as a therapist or as a parent, that one of the best things you can do is, yeah, it's that, man, thanks so much for sharing that with me. I mean, that sounds really hard, but keeping that same energy of like, so, but we're, hey, we got 45 minutes left in the session. So let's keep going. Yeah. Tell me more. What, yeah. 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 So was I answering a question? <laughs> I feel like. Because we're, oh, it was the thing about the training and the bishop and the, that sort of thing. And so I think one of the challenges, and I know that in working in the faith journey world, people often talk about the phrase leadership roulette. And I think that can be really difficult because I, I and on the worldwide training I did, um, I mentioned that the irony of when you help people get from, if, uh, if your listeners are familiar with Valor stages of faith, and if you really look at that stage three, as they kind of talk about it, the, everything fits in, in one nice tidy box from you know, preexistence to eternity here's the way it works. And so then when people struggle and they have, you know, okay, I have tried more, I have prayed, I have read my scriptures or, you know, my, I, my spouse has been unfaithful or my uh, kid has come out as gay or, you know, I've, I've experienced loss or I've had this chemical depression or so then I can't, I just don't fit in that box, you know, that stage three box. And then they enter that stage, Fowler stage four of where then they feel like, okay, I'm angry about the stage three experience. And then I, this is where I introduced this concept of reactance of well, the instant negative reaction of being told what to do. So the more that stage three people say, well, you just need to not do that. You need to do this. 
that our own brains like i will do the opposite of that yep you know how yep. dare you say that as a matter of fact you guys are dumb you know so that stage four stage three battle i think is just so intense so when i get somebody in my office often they're in that stage four space and so then the stage five vibe is that hey life's full of mystery and paradox and i can return to my faith community but maybe without feeling stuck inside a theological box you know and, and recognizing that life is it is uh there's a lot going on there a lot of variables yes. you know that sort of thing and i'll just insert here if people yeah. aren't familiar with fowler stages of faith we'll put a link in the show notes of of some content that we created around because okay. if, if there's a church leader listening out there who's dealt with people or, or anybody really who's dealt with people who's are going through a faith crisis if you don't have the framing it, it's so of fowler's amazing. stages of faith it's hard to, you're just not going to get very far. Anyways. Can no, you, it's, yeah. no, it's good. And, and, and I would love for you, if you can include, I've got a couple of episodes. There was one I did and I wasn't talking even about, it was when uh, Elder Holland had, had had some remarks at, in Provo. Oh, yeah. uh-huh. And I happened to release one that week where I think it was titled, if I want to know what to do with my life, just ask somebody else. Yeah. And I Because they always know what to do, right? <laughs> well, it was. And, I, and it was one of the, I felt like one of the most authentic or powerful episodes that I had done because I had just had this breakthrough experience with somebody I've been working with for years who had struggled with scrupulosity. So OCD of religious thought. Mm-hmm. And with that person, they had basically gone from this insane OCD of how do I talk to God? Because it obviously isn't working because I'm still having negative thoughts, inappropriate thoughts. And to the point where this person at one point stopped working with me because they said that they had, they felt like maybe I was of the devil incarnate, mm-hmm. you know, myself. And then he had to go from breaking down his, how do I communicate with God to a pretty scary space for a while of, is there a God, which is a pretty normal process when you're working with somebody, especially with scrupulosity to then work through Fowler stages of faith that that kind of rebuild that, oh, I am okay. And because of my experiences, this is how I see God or how I know God. And then I was talking about, and then when you get over to that place and now you've kind of become uh, interdependent and differentiated from your, sometimes your faith community, but then, and you've dealt with the invalidation that comes along with that, but you've now found your voice and your God-given talents and abilities. And, and now all of a sudden I always say, you realize, oh, God was there the whole time. You know, it, it was, I was making a mess of this thing or, and so in that scenario, Anyway, I laid out these stages of faith and it came out the same week as Elder Holland had said some things and I had some requests for interviews where people said, obviously you were talking about Elder Holland, right? It's like, no. I recorded this weeks ago. Yeah. yeah, Yeah. It's like, no, I wasn't. But I mean, that was one I feel very, I like to send to people when they're curious about stages of faith or or that sort of thing. We'll link to it for sure. Okay, good. And so, but that stage five experience, and I think where I was going with that is it's really difficult still to get somebody to that place where they can just be okay being themselves or that they recognize that they are lovable. And I feel like the, when people get to that stage five as a leader or as a person, it is that true level of what's called differentiation, which is where one, one person ends and the other begins. And when you become differentiated, then you realize I don't have to break down someone else's view of, of life. And I don't really have to defend mine because if we're showing up differentiated, you know, that, that is two of God's children that are communicating that obviously have different experiences. We teach that since primary, you know, that I'm a child of God and I'm, I'm unique and have my talents and abilities and gifts. Mm -hmm. And so then when we become differentiated and we realize my job is not to tell somebody else how to think, feel, or behave. Now we can start looking at things with curiosity, which then comes with more questions about, well, tell me how you think, tell me how you feel and tell me about your behavior. And now we're looking at it from curiosity. And when people feel safe enough to have that kind of interaction, when I talk about differentiation and my hand naturally goes to this place, like I'm holding up this platter of like, well, here's my experiences. So I don't know. What do you think about these? You know, and if the person's saying, I hadn't thought of that, 
you know, I might want to take a little bit of that, mm-hmm. you know, where I feel like uh, it, it doesn't end up being this all or nothing experience of, and that's where I feel like with a leader and even a therapist at times where they'll even come in and say, okay, so tell me what I'm supposed to do. Well, you need to read your scriptures and say your prayers. You need to go to the temple more and you spend more time with your family, yeah. double down. So instead calling. of holding out their platter, they're like, here, yeah, they're take like, it. Here, this is mine. It. This works for me. You take this yeah. home. This is my platter. Yeah. And this is the equation. Do it. Right. And then, right. And I'm glad you said that way. Cause then it's basically then, and I've had these leaders as well, where the person then gets that and they don't feel heard. They don't feel understood. They do try to do all the check boxes, but when they're doing them from a, okay, I'll do these check boxes. There's a couple of things I feel that are a challenge. That was a very nice way for me to say they're wrong, but a challenge with that is then if somebody really doesn't feel heard or understood, or they don't even understand what they're struggling with or why, then they can do the check boxes. Okay, I've been reading 15 minutes every day. I've said my prayers morning and night. Um, I've paid my fast offering. You know, I've done my calling better. I still want to look at porn. Mm-hmm. You know, That's so right, yeah. I must really be bad. Yeah. And then they bring that because even the bishop's platter doesn't yeah, work for me. Exactly. Yeah. So I must be really bad. And then and I bless the bishop's heart, sick president or whatever. But then if they're saying, "Man, you did do those things," so you must not have done them like with enough yes. righteousness or right. Yeah. Yeah. Do a doubles or double time or whatever. Yeah. 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 So this hard. is, and this is, again, this is why we jump into this. We could have never planned this discussion of like how to walk into a bishop's office, you know, right. but, and there's another concept I want to talk about that, you know, going back to this concept of like, they're bringing in some energy and it's usually a lot of energy filled with shame mm-hmm. and your job isn't to give them, you know, tasks or check on their behavior, but to diffuse that and, you know, grace and love is typically yep. what, what does that. But there's also this. From, I guess there's there, we're, we're like when somebody needs like we have this cultural tradition. I did something bad and it's pretty significant. I must go see my bishop. Or a yeah. youth is like, oh man, I've been looking at the porn and I know I'm supposed to see the bishop, but I don't want to see the bishop because I don't know what, if he's going to be mad. So I'm just going to put it off, right? Yeah. And just this the stigma of like I must talk with the bishop about this, and oh, we have this tradition of. Yes. Only the bishop, the part of the bishop's keys, priesthood yeah. keys, is that his ears are given the gift of hearing confessions. Mm-hmm. And that if a counselor, a bishop or counselor, is in a temple recommend interview, and suddenly this youth or somebody comes up with like, oh, actually, I'm not worthy. I, there are some things I, I need to clear up. It's so easy for that counselor to be to say, or maybe they even trained to say, this, like, oh, no, 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 okay, stop talking. Yeah. You need to see the bishop. Yeah. And don't say another word when in reality, you can approach that person as a fellow human being on this journey in mortality yeah. and say like, oh, wow, like, do you want to talk about it right now? Yes. Right. And again, you don't need authority to h- listen to somebody's heart and what they struggle with, Ooh, right? Doggone it, you've got the best quote so far. <laughs> That's a good one. And because the moment you stop a discussion and say, no, you need to talk to somebody else, what you're saying is that something's wrong and it's yeah. in you. And it needs to be fixed yes. and you need to go see a really big person to fix that. And I must be shame, dramatic shame, and not shame. hear anything else. As a matter of fact, right. I'm keeping a water bottle beside right. me so I can do a spit take now. Hold on. <laughs> I just need to get a little bit of water in my mouth. What are you kidding? Yeah, me? exactly. Right? And, and so let me f- yes. lay this foundation a little bit further that oftentimes I worry that people, there's just this cultural stigma of like what I do when I do something bad is I go see the bishop, even when I'm not ready to talk about this with the bishop, but I'm supposed to do it. Like to create space and say, maybe if, or maybe you have tried to see the bishop, it didn't go well. Mm-hmm. You felt felt out, you walked out with heavier shoulders and more shame. Bless his heart, right? yep. acting with best intentions. Yes. 
maybe there's somebody else you could talk to with it a while, either a therapist, a yeah. loved one, a friend, yeah, an elders quorum president, a relief society president. And that's, this is, a, I think, where we miss a big thing of, like, if I was to do the bishop thing again, under our current things of uh, standards of delegating more to the elders quorum president, I think there's ways to go about it so that the bishop isn't meeting with Billy you know, in elders quorum every week about his porn struggles. Yeah. Maybe it's that the conversation started there. And then with the permission of everybody involved and making sure that there's safety, you bring in the elders quorum president or somebody else in the quorum and saying, why don't you talk to him for a few weeks? We'll meet in four weeks and see how it goes. That's what delegation looks yeah. like. Right. So anyways, but the point being is that sometimes when an individual walks into the bishop's office with an energy charged topic that needs to be diffused, if that interaction with the bishop isn't serving that to diffuse that, maybe consider other people you talk to. And then at some point, again, I'm not saying, yes, the bishop does have keys of repentance and whatnot, and that process needs to take place, but it may happen at different points in that journey for different people, right? It could be yeah. at the very end where you're like, I'm in a very good place emotionally. I've handled these things. I haven't looked at porn for nine months. I think I'll go see the bishop now. Mm -hmm. Or it might be the person like, I looked at porn last night. I need to go see the bishop now. And yeah. there, there could be help on either end of those spectrums. Anyways, what, what, what comes okay. to mind? 900 things. So I hope I can keep <laughs> it's so good. And I would even in, insert the asking the person, hey, who do you feel comfortable talking to? Because mm. I feel like that, when we talk Great about energy, question. yeah. because when I have people in my office, I want them to have a support network because oftentimes they will leave an office and say, I feel so hurt. And this, this so is going back to the, I want to talk about connection. Like, yeah, like we say these terms, like we need to stimulate more connection, but I think most leaders like, what does that even look like? Right. Totally. So anyways, oh, so, so this question of, man, I would use that every time. Like when you have a hard day, who do you generally talk to? Like, who do you feel like you can talk yeah, to? Yeah. And even if in right now, if it's like, well, I don't talk to anybody, then I do. I often talk about, and this is an old act bit, acceptance and commitment therapy bit when you're trying to get somebody to recognize their values. Mm -hmm. And if they say, I don't even know. Then sometimes you'll say, okay, think of anybody. Uh, it can be living, it can be dead, it can be a relative, it can be somebody, uh, somebody in the news, it can be whoever. Who do you, who do you really admire and what do you admire about them? And people will pull these things. I mean, I had a lady the other day talk about, she was talking about a current pop star, a female pop star. And I was saying, well, what, what do you admire about her? And she said, she speaks her truth, you know? And so it's like this woman had this deep core value of wanting to be heard or speak her truth, but she was absolutely afraid to do so. Mm -hmm. So I bring that up by, you know, even if somebody says, I don't know, I don't talk to anybody, then it's like, well, who do you admire? Who do you look up to in the ward? Who do you, who do you feel a connection or who do you hear give a sacrament talk? And you think, man, I, I like when this guy starts talking, yeah. you know, cause like they're real. Be, I could get real. They're with real. Them. And, yeah. that's, mm -hmm. and that's, I like that. That's, they're real. And so, so now I'm going to take a tiny, and I'm so sorry, Kurt, but I'm going to take a little, little tiny tangent that's could go along a lot of places. You don't have tiny tangents. No, I do not. I do Here we not. go. <laughs> so you talked about shame and I was digging into this a few weeks ago and I did an episode on the virtual couch where I, I said, why do we beat ourselves up? Where does shame come from? And I knew that as a therapist, I knew to say, well, it's from our childhood and it's a defense mechanism. Okay. What does that mean? So I did a whole episode where I dug deep and, and this goes into all of the amazing abandonment and attachment stuff that I talk about every chance I get. And you guys left it in my four hour presentation, which I was so grateful for. So abandonment and attachment starts from birth, from the womb. When a kid comes out, they cry and scream and they get their diaper changed and they are fed. So we are built to express ourselves and get our needs met, period. Like that is our job when we come out of the, the shoot. I know that's, maybe we can edit that. <laughs> but the job is like we express ourselves, people meet our needs. But then the older we get, 
Now we express ourselves, people don't meet our needs. So in comes abandonment. So you've got attachment and abandonment. We all want this attachment to others because if you get super psychology nerdy deep, that a baby doesn't even know they exist or that they're an entity until they have an interaction with another thing. So that's why even why they cry. That's why, you know, anything is like, I'm crying. Anything? Am I anybody here? They're not saying I'm hungry. They're saying, am I a thing? They're like, do Do I I have purpose? yeah. Yeah. How crazy is that? So then we start from this attachment base around life. And so we need another, we want to know, do we matter? Do I exist? And so someone else in essence is like, yeah, you're good. You know? So that's amazing principle. But then as we start becoming two, three, four years old, now I say now introduce the abandonment track. So now it's that I would like a pony for my birthday. And your parent says, no, we live in the suburbs and we've got to literally have this conversation. Okay. So, and then, but the kid is a kid. So they say, well, I mean, they don't think this, but they are programmed to say, but I am emoting right now and you are not meeting my needs. I need a pony and you're not getting it. Yeah. I would like to eat candy corn for dinner. And you were saying no. So this is where, and man, we are going to, I know I don't, I was about to say, Kurt, I don't care how long we take on this because this starts to get into the emotional immaturity, narcissism. If it starts to get dark outside, Tony. Okay. Well, we should wrap it up. Five hours away. Okay. (laughs) So then this is where I say that the, uh, every little kid by definition is a little narcissistic egomaniac because they only think of themselves. They're egocentered. You've met my seven-year-old. This is interesting. (laughs) (laughs) That's funny. One day he'll be, he'll say, and then I heard my dad talk about me on a podcast and he'll be on a therapist. <laughs> oh, he's already got an appointment right. for you in 2034. <laughs> okay. So, yeah. All right. So then the, a little kid doesn't have a sense of what other people's experiences are. So if a kid doesn't get a new bike for Christmas, they just think, well, my parent must not like me. They don't think, oh, we have eight kids. My dad just lost his job and finances. Like a kid doesn't care. So they emote and get their needs met. And then when we don't meet their needs now, talk about abandonment it's because they must be bad so and this is where now you move into the way that we get our sense of self is we need external validation Mm -hmm. so if our parent is happy as a kid we're like i must be good if our parent is sad then we think oh i must be bad i must have done something and this is why you can look at when uh, people go through divorce often i can meet with somebody now that's in their 30s and their parents got a divorce when they were you know 12 and they can even sit on my couch and say, no, I know it was the best thing because they're in better relationships now. They're, they're healthier or whatever. And you can even say, if you really dig deep and go back and think about that, did you ever feel like any of that was your fault? And almost to a oh, T, yeah. they can say, I mean, yeah, I kind of always felt like, I don't know, if I was better, if I was nicer, if I would have done more around the house or, you know, that maybe things would have turned out different. So we still have a, an, a core need to, to like make it about us. And which is wild if you think about that. So then in this concept of abandonment and then when I go back to shame, so shame comes in of saying if they didn't meet my needs and they didn't get me the pony, then it must have been me. Like I must be bad. Mm-hmm. So that's happening when you're in childhood and it's happening like subconscious. And so then it's almost like our default when we get older is that, okay, if, if someone didn't meet my needs or if things didn't turn out the way that I needed, I wanted them to, here comes our brain says, oh, uh, run the shame program like because it must be because i'm a bad person mm-hmm. you know if my spouse doesn't want as much of a connection physical connection with me then oh yeah it's because i'm bad because i've been asking i mean i i asked for more yeah, and then they don't so shame and when you look at it on paper like that like the fact that these events can suddenly be tied back to our identity like yeah. nothing can sh- should confirm to you more that there's an ad- adversary that is after us and after our identity like the fact that he can twist a divorce into 
that's because you're bad. Totally. Like, that's what's happening. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Or, or that's why, you know, go back to that concept of somebody that turns to any unhealthy coping mechanism, gambling, porn, work, their phone, whatever. And then they, every time they do it and they and they say, okay, it's the last time, I'm not right. going to do it again. But then they don't do anything to understand why they do that. Right. They don't, they don't. They haven't addressed the identity. Right? Exactly. They've only so then, addressed the behavior. Yeah. yeah. So that's where I feel like, then they get to say, man, I am a horrible person. And I think, yeah, it's, a, it's an adversary because it's like, that's a layup for him. Right. Because we want to get to that place of being, I am okay. And I am a child of God and I am trying my best. And I am, I have, and this is why I love acceptance and commitment therapy. Because mm-hmm. again, where does it start with? Somebody saying, why do I have these thoughts? Why, why do I keep doing this? It's like, oh, because I do, because I'm the only version of me that's ever walked the face of the earth. So this is what I do when these things happen. You know, when I hit 35, oh, I told this story while my son-in-law Mitch just graduated from BYU-Idaho and I go up there with my daughter Mackie and we, uh, my, my, I'm throwing all the names out, my daughter Alex, who got in this really bad yeah, car yeah. crash, right? Uh, Mitch is her husband. Alex is still recovering in Arizona at this time. So we all go out to see Mitch graduate and a news uh, crew comes in and they're filming Mitch and they've got a camera on Alex back in Arizona. It's this beautiful human interest story. But meanwhile, my ADD, I impulsively booked a hotel like an hour away. So I've got my daughter Mackie staying with me and we're driving in and out, in and out. So then the last night I just say, I don't care. I'm not like money's no object, but I book like at a Motel 6 or something in Rexburg because I just don't want to keep driving back and forth. (laughs) So then we go there and then I leave my AirPods there when I check out. The reason I'm saying all of this is that then I get to the airport and I think, man, and I immediately want to beat myself up. Like, I'm a horrible person. What is wrong with me? And then I, I had to use my own medicine here. And I, I said, oh, I'm a human being and I'm going about life. And so, and then I said this on a podcast and I feel like I don't know. At first, I think that people didn't understand where I was going, but I said, so, so check this out. Every single time that my daughter gets in a, a horrific car crash and then her her husband, my son-in-law, then graduates BYU-Idaho four months later. And we go to Rexburg and I book a hotel out of town and then book another hotel in town and then leave that hotel. I lose my AirPods every single time, Kurt. (laughs) See what I'm saying? (laughs) So it's like, that's where I go back to, even when I go back to that thing about, oh, bad behavior and sin and all these Uh things, it's like, or that happened. Yeah. And now what do we do? I'm having a human experience because I am human. Which, which, which I don't know great. how long we are into this, where it's like first plug for the atonement. I'm a big fan. <laughs> I really am. I gave a sacrament talk not long ago and I just said, I gave this whole thing about external validation and nobody knows the troubles I've seen, you know, that, that kind of a, that spiritual hymn. And, and I said, I pulled a quote from Elder Bednar that was so beautiful where he just talks about, you know, I skip right past the atonement covers sin and that stuff. It's like, it covers grief and loss and pain and sorrow and that, uh, that Christ is, I mean, he, he has perfect empathy. So I call it, I mean, call him, he's the great empath. And so when I talk about people needing external validation, Hey, am I okay? I mean, I feel like they're basically handing their, am I okay? Off to somebody who's like, Ooh, I don't know what to say here, but I'm a bishop. So I'm going to say, I don't think so. You know, I think you need to do something else uh, better. Or I hand it over to my spouse. I'm like, I don't know. Do you think I'm okay? And if they're saying, I don't know if I say this right, will they want to be physical with me? So yeah, no, I think you're okay. <laughs> yeah. Or if I say they're okay, then what does that mean? I'm not okay. So we're handing our like this, am I okay off to people where then I feel like, meanwhile, the atonement is about, all right, I know who's telling me I'm okay. Mm-hmm. Turns out God. <laughs> so he's like, oh no, remember I created you? Like, let's start with the, you're good. And you have thoughts and feelings and emotions you have because you're a human being Yeah, and you're trying your best. Man, see, that was a tangent, right? But that was, we talked about shame. We talked about abandonment and attachment. And so that's where I feel like it's because, and, and we talked about identity and sense of self. And okay, I was trying to, that was me trying to get back to where we started from. I don't remember. 
I went on my rant about seeing someone else, the energy behind, like if the bishop can't defuse it, yeah, you need someone to talk to. And then that, that, cause that's shame. You walk shame, in with shame. Shame's not good. And, and we can transition. That. Why don't we, I want to jump into narcissism. Because so here's Jeez. the thing. Like, like you said, narcissism is this buzzword that's yes. in 2022, right? And yeah. again, plug, you have, you have the virtual couch podcast and then mm. this is a completely separate podcast feed yeah. called Waking Up to Narcissism. Waking Up to Narcissism. Okay. Now, and I'm going to start it from a, a leadership context. There is this feeling of, you know, we, we throw this around like, like we do OCD and, you know, we, like these are, these are clinical terms that now we're just using in everyday language, right? So, yes. just because somebody is rude doesn't necessarily mean that they're a narcissist, right? No. Or just because you have a difficult bishop to work with doesn't mean he's a prideful narcissist that didn't get hugged as a little boy or something, right? Like, right. there's so much going on. But I get the emails from people that they think, oh, Kurt. I'm so glad you're doing this podcast or this this effort with leading saints. And oh boy, if you could only meet my bishop or my mm-hmm. relief state president or state president because they're a narcissist. Yeah. And again, I'm not fully this. Maybe where we can start is what does that term even mean on a clinical level? But like, and can we? Obviously, it's a diagnosis, so maybe we should yeah. we should pump the brakes a little bit and yes. not try and diagnose somebody with yes. a clinical term when we're not even that's not our thing. So. Let's start there, like with that background of of leadership and narcissism. Like, what is narcissism? So let me. I'm going to say one quick thing, and then I'm going to do. I pulled up uh, an article by a uh, another therapist named Eleanor Greenberg that I just really like the way that she lays a few things out. So the first thing I'm going to say is that. So yeah, this narcissism waking up the narcissism podcast. I was really intentional. Again, I was intentional about the name when I was talking about my own narcissistic traits and tendencies. I started laying that out a good. 100 episodes into the virtual couch. Now I'm at 330 or however many episodes. And I would get plenty of people that would say, do you really mean that? Or are you just kind of joking? And I was saying, oh no, I mean, I I really, these are narcissistic (laughs) traits or tendencies Uh that I would have. And so whenever I would do a a podcast and I would bring up narcissism or gaslighting or these sort of things, I mean, you know, you you see when you do one that pulls a lot more downloads than anything else, right? And this narcissism or my four pillars or parenting or faith crisis, those were by far a lot more people paying attention. And so then I started just, and then, okay, then the more couples I'm seeing and the reason I'm seeing more couples is because of the thing I talked about with the pornography where I'm realizing a lot of the guys don't have a good marriage or connection. So then I go find this um, evidence-based model for marriages, emotionally focused therapy started by Sue, Sue Johnson, this Canadian psychologist that's amazing. And that's the basis of my four pillars of a connected conversation. So I find the emotionally focused therapy. I start working with more men in their marriages uh, to help them turn away from unhealthy coping mechanisms. So then the more couples I start seeing, the more, let's say, and right now I I probably see 20 couples a week. I've been doing that for a few years now. And so 15 of them, maybe now it's probably 10, maybe it's 50, 50, but at first it would maybe 15 of them. You would lay out these new tools and it was clearly a uh, people just don't know how to communicate because they don't know how to communicate because they didn't see it modeled and they're and they're and it's a skill set right such a skill set it, it is yeah. not it's not way. like a it's trade or, yeah. no it isn't inherent yeah, because exactly. oh because we're coming at at things from a emotionally immature abandonment and attachment place and so uh, man I feel like that is where I got off the tangent when I said I couldn't remember where we were going with. <laughs> And it was about abandonment and attachment, but I'm going to, I'm going to pretend that we made it. I'm going to pretend we landed the plane over there. Okay. Let's do it. 
but so then people don't know what they don't know. And so, oh, no, I do need to finish the thought. So what, what it was is that that really is that if somebody doesn't, yeah, if somebody doesn't meet my needs, then something's wrong with me. So we actually bring that that abandonment principle into our adult relationships. So when we show up in adult relationships, we're still trying to figure out how do I need to show up so that this person will love me? Because, you know, navigating if they don't love me, but the way I want them to love me, it's because it is me. I must be bad. That's the attachment piece. So I got to figure out a way to get this person to love me. So in our childhood, it's the, do I become the star athlete? Do I become the star student? Because is that the way that my parents notice me? Mm -hmm. And then this is where I think this, I really feel like this part helps parents a lot. Because I think that we know the line where when a kid is acting out and they're being mean or they're withdrawing or they're, I mean, anything, if they, if they start cutting, if they start uh, expressing suicidal ideation or, you know, we're thinking, why on earth do they do that? And it's because if that is the way they get noticed, you know, if that's the way they know they exist is because they only get that attention when they go down this path of, of negativity, then that becomes their, the way that they are showing up from an attachment standpoint. At some point though, if they're expressing themselves of saying, you know, Hey, here's uh, here's what I need from you, from a parent, from a, in a, or in a relationship. And that person doesn't respond now they we hearken back to that oh it's because it is me i am unlovable i am broken or something's wrong with me so that's what we bring into adult relationships and so now we start trying to date somebody and we're both you know saying okay well what do you think it's like oh i like this movie or then and then the guy might say oh i totally do too now in his mind he's thinking okay because if i if she knows i hate those movies she's gone and then we even in our emotional immaturity we start saying I could probably get, I could probably learn to love that movie. I mean, I, no, I do. I love that movie. Yeah, yeah. But then we don't realize we're showing up emotionally immature because then all of a sudden if the, if she says, well, what do you love about that movie? You know? And it's like, man, what don't I love about that movie? Right. And so now we get into a little bit of gaslight, right? Where it's like, I mean, I, yeah. Or change the subject. Like, or change yeah. the subject, whatever it is. And that's where we're starting the, the, the bits of emotional immaturity start coming out. And that's where I feel like now we've got emotional immaturity, but those can also be viewed as narcissistic traits or tendencies of like, you see where I feel like you're about to have a yeah, So narcissism begins to come to the surface when an individual's needs have not been met in the past or they have a history of their needs not being met. Yeah. And so they sort of put on a front of where they demand the needs to be met or they, they contort or manipulate. They're going to get those needs met. Whatever it takes to yeah. get those needs met. So, because it's a deep child. So Eleanor Greenberg says it so well. She says, uh, what is narcissistic personality disorder? She said, it's the name of a series of coping strategies that began as an adaptation to a childhood family situation that left the person with unstable self-esteem, the inability to regulate their self-esteem without external validation and low empathy. So when you break down those three things, I think that- Okay, read that, that one more time. Yeah. So it's a name for a series of coping strategies that began as an adaptation to a childhood family situation that left the person with unstable self-esteem. So okay. they, they have unstable self-esteem because their childhood experience was one where they never felt secure in their relationship with their yeah. parent. Or they, you know, there might've been physical abuse, there might've been emotional abuse. Their parent could have just not been there emotionally for them. So then instead of the kid just feeling like they are okay as they are, that they have to, they feel like I need to, I have to, what do I got to do? I got to juggle. I have to like be perfect. I have to do, what do I have to do mm -hmm. to get my parent to love me or care about me or notice me? So if my parent is going through their own stuff, if my parent is emotionally immature and narcissistic because they're, my grandparents or, you know, yeah. their parents were never there for them, then they don't know what they don't know. Right. And so then all of a sudden, you know, you enter an, an adult relationship and you think that the normal way that this is, is that, well, you don't take accountability or ownership for anything. 
you know, I didn't do it. No, you, you said something else. Like I didn't, you know, I didn't mean that or I didn't do that. Cause when you were a kid, if you were wrong or if you do admitted you did something wrong, then you got in trouble. And if yeah. you get in trouble, all of a sudden as a little kid, you can't count that your parents aren't going to just leave you or run away. Yeah. Now that's your little kid brain. So that's where I talk about gaslighting comes as a childhood defense mechanism. Mm-hmm. You know, it comes from this deep, deep wound of that. I cannot be wrong. Cause if I was wrong yeah, as a kid, yeah. I heard about it. I literally got hit. I got a- abandoned. I got, you know, or all the attention was given to the, my brother who he figured out the game earlier than I did. And he's like, I didn't do it, yeah. you know? And so it's kind of crazy. Yeah. So then if you go back to that childhood family situation, right? Unstable self-esteem, the inability to regulate self-esteem without external validation and lower empathy. So is there a healthy level of narcissism yes. in all of us, right? Like, is yes. it, like none of us is free of narcissism, but is that, is that actually can be a, a benefit rather than... Yes, yeah. So it's a great question. And for real, it's a real <laughs> great question. And that's why early in the episode, when I said I'm going to step into my healthy ego, sometimes I forget that people don't listen to all zillion hours I've done on every one of my podcasts because that was a major shift. So about episode 9, 10, or 11, somewhere in there on the waking up to narcissism, I intentionally went pretty big and I said, wait, am I the narcissist is the name of the episode. And it's so, it, it's so much far away downloaded even more than, than others because people often say, okay, well, maybe I'm the narcissist because I, I don't admit things all the time or I don't want to be in trouble or you know that, yeah. that sort of thing. And I kind of have a go-to thing where I say, if you're even asking yourself if you're a narcissist, you're not. I mean, so that's a good start. Cause and on that, even episode, though we I, all have some level of narcissism, well, that's where okay. I go with it. Okay. So this was very intentional. So, and, uh, in that episode, I, I went down the diagnostic criteria of narcissistic personality disorder. I mean, and I don't even think we need to go into that now because here's the thing. Maybe one or 2% of the population is it would be diagnosed as narcissistic personality disorder. But now if we start looking at the spectrum of emotional immaturity, now we're talking. So I, re, I started redefining, you know, I would say, okay, narcissistic traits and tendencies or emotional immaturity. And if we start looking at, I mean, somebody would much rather be called emotionally immature than a narcissist, right? Mm-hmm. And then when you start looking at emotional immaturity, then I feel like it's easier for us all to kind of take ownership or accountability of place times when we are emotionally immature. So emotional immaturity is pretty much a synonymous with narcissism. Well, so narcissistic personality disorder is a thing and then okay. narcissistic traits, tendencies and emotional immaturity. I feel like those okay. are it's like now or it's on the an, spectrum. It, under the umbrella of. Yeah, not narcissistic personality disorder, but narcissistic traits, tendencies can fall into that emotional okay. immaturity. So then. So, and again, I'm going to go back to, cause I think Eleanor Greenberg, she said this one thing in particular, and then I, I hijacked it and uh, I don't know her. So I don't know if she thinks this is cool. I <laughs> doesn't even know about that. I've done this, but she says uh, normal versus pathological narcissism. So she says, unfortunately in the English language, the word narcissism has come to mean two entirely different things, depending on whether it's being used formally as a diagnosis as a narcissistic personality disorder or informally as a synonym. And it's interesting. She says for positive self-regard, cause I feel like Oh, it's not used as a synonym for positive self-regard in the zeitgeist in the last five to 10 years. You know, it's used as a, as a negative, you know, you are a narcissist trait. But she said, I'm often asked, isn't a little bit of narcissism healthy and normal? And she said, I want to clarify that. So she talks about normal, healthy narcissism. And I, here's where I, I'm going to take ownership of, I am taking her words and I now have been, I'm in, in replacing narcissism with ego. Let's talk about normal, healthy ego. Okay. Uh-huh. Because ego is like where you operate from. Ego is your sense of self. Uh-huh. We all are operating from within our ego. That is our experience. Even to the we are. basic level of I'm hungry, I must feed myself because I yep. deserve to be fed. Yeah. yeah. And, and you have to work hard to step outside of your ego 
and stepping out of your ego, I sometimes, uh, in my mind, I look at it as if you're in a barrel. Your barrel is your ego. You have to step outside of your ego to even really try to understand, empathize, or sympathize with another human being. Because if not, you're still taking in their experience through your yeah. your ego, your lens. And that's your filter. Or it's your, your lens. Filter. Yeah, yeah mm-hmm. totally. So she says, okay, she says normal healthy narcissism. I now say, thank you, Eleanor. I'll take it from here. And that's normal healthy ego. <laughs> So this is a realistic sense of positive self-regard that is based on the person's actual accomplishments. It is relatively stable because the person is assimilated into their self-image, the successes that came as a result of their actual hard work to overcome real-life obstacles. Because it is based on real achievements, normal, healthy, she says narcissism, I say ego, is relatively impervious to the minor slights and setbacks that we all experience as we go through life. Normal, narcissism slash ego, causes us to care about ourselves do things that are in our self, our real self-interest and is associated with genuine self-respect. One can think of it as something that is inside of us. So this is going to get really big when we start talking about emotional immaturity or narcissistic traits or tendencies in church leadership, I think. Yeah. Yeah. So that concept. So like I've often thought about, because as I've tried to understand this concept of narcissism and ego, and is it just like this bloated ego and, yeah. and, and on a dangerous level or whatnot. But I've often thought like in sometimes in the tough moments where maybe the adversary is trying to come after my identity with shame yeah. and whatnot of this feeling of like, what gives me the right to think I can start a podcast oh, and, and talk to church leaders about yeah. improving leadership? Like, you know, stay in your lane, buddy. You know, yeah. like you really don't know what you're talking about or what get, what makes me think I can actually sit down with Tony Overbay and have a logical conversation when I don't, I don't have a day of school and therapy type of thing, right? But my, the narcissist in me on a healthy level and the ego- Healthy I, ego version I of I can approach says. that and be like, oh no, actually I've got a lot of experience. I've done this a long time and I'll step in a, un, into that r- arena any day yeah. and I'm very confident I'll handle myself. And then- um, it blesses other lives because I'm willing to do that rather than shrink in this yeah, false I, humility. I, I'm literally getting the chills. I really know this. And this is where I feel like spirit chills. I don't know if AC just kicked on, but. But I'm on track this, with that. This, like yes, I, how this I'm, is where I want you to okay. be. I, I want you to be here, Kurt. Um, so, because this is why. Now, I, oh, okay. I'm so excited. Let me read her definition of pathological defensive narcissism then. And then I want to talk about, um, let's talk about our older brother, Jesus. Okay. I'm a big fan. <laughs> me too. Pathological defensive narcissism. So we just talked about healthy ego. So it's based off of real accomplishments, right? Mm-hmm. And it's a, a sense of positive self-regard. It's something that's inside of us and it's impervious to slights and setbacks. So if you are, are working off of a healthy ego, and that's where I feel like if somebody says to me, well, I think you're dumb uh, when you talk about narcissism or emotional immaturity, and this sounds so negative, but when I say, bless your heart or okay, because I'm coming from a, a healthy ego of, oh, I've spent my life now, in essence, understanding or learning about this. And it has helped me become a better person, understanding my narcissistic traits and tendencies. And now I'm stepping into my healthy ego. And when I talk about valor stages of faith, or I talk about how to overcome, I mean, I, people can tell me all the time that I'm, I don't know that I need to be harsher on somebody when we're talking about pornography and I don't care. I don't care what they say. That's so bad, Kurt. But it's because it's like, I know what I know and I'm aware and I'm, and I'm open to admitting what I don't know. And that's me coming from a healthy yeah. ego of when I talk about, oh, for 1600 individuals using shame as a component of recovery. So when somebody says, but I don't know, I disagree. And I'm like, bless your heart. Yeah. That's adorable. Like when you're on the phone with that bishop who says, hey, when, oh. when they come in, I need you to really get after them about this pornography. Oh, it's got to stop, right? A different version of yourself and, different. A, and yes. another alternative uh, reality could be like, oh boy, like, oh yeah, I, mean, I need this bishop to like me. 
okay, yeah, I'll do that. You know, like rather Kurt, than, your, no, I'm on, the therapist. Here, yes. Right? On one of your, on the, that first podcast we did. And I said that I don't feel like it's, I don't like somebody not taking the sacrament. I don't personally. Yeah. And so I feel like that they need, and I said on that one, I think they need two cups of water and a bigger piece of bread. And I had a higher up leader person that I was talking with in a completely different scenario. And they said, Hey, I loved everything about that episode. I heard that a couple of, and this was like, they said a couple of years ago. And I said, were you talking metaphorically though? I mean, and I said, Oh no, if I was ever called to be something, I mean, yeah, here's the bigger bread for the people uh-huh. that are really struggling. And he said, I don't know if that's going to ever get you in a position of church leadership. Right. And I said, okay. <laughs> I mean, that's the healthy yeah, ego part. Right, it's right. like, well, I'm not going to, if they're saying, cause I don't yeah, need that position to meet my need. No, yeah, yeah. cause I don't mm-hmm. need that validation because I don't need external validation because I am internally validated. Right. So her pathological defensive narcissism, she says, this is a defense against feelings of inferiority. So let's start thinking right now, if you are a, a bishop, bless your heart, and you feel like, I don't feel confident of what I'm doing right now, right? Because that's very hard to walk around day to day oh, or week gosh. to week in that position of like, and it's maybe the, uh, what do they call it? The uh, imposter, imposter syndrome. syndrome. Yeah. Yes. Right. So that's where I want anyone hearing this, that I'm saying, I my heart goes out to you because, you know, you're, I mean, I have one of my good friends that became a bishop is like, okay, you're, you're, uh, you know, you're selling insurance in the day. And then all of a sudden at night, you're a marriage therapist. Mm-hmm. Like, I can't imagine because it took me years of therapy school and practicing therapy and not liking couples counseling before I finally said, I think this is okay. Yeah. So then it says, all right, pathological defensive narcissism. This is a defense against feelings of inferiority. The person dons a mask of arrogant superiority in an attempt to convince the world that he or she is special. Inside, the person feels very insecure about his or her actual self-worth. This facade of superiority is so thin that it's like a helium balloon. One small pinprick will deflate it. This makes the person hypersensitive to minor slights that someone with healthy narcissism or healthy ego would not even notice. Instead, someone with this type of defensive narcissism is easily wounded, frequently takes any form of disagreement as serious criticism, and is likely to lash out and devalue anyone who they think is disagreeing with them. They are constantly on guard trying to protect their status, or I would say their ego. Pathological defensive narcissism can be thought of as a protective armor that is on the outside of us. So, so let me just put a pin in that yeah. protecting status. And when we, anyways, when we look at the church leader dynamic yeah, with this, totally. if they say, "Oh, I don't know," or "I'm not really quite sure what to do," or if someone says, "You're not doing a good job," and I have a problem with you, they're yeah. saying you shouldn't have this status. That's what they're hearing. And yeah. and actually, I'm going to go tell the state president or. That you shouldn't, right? Like that's how yeah. they're computing it, right? And it's funny, going back to uh, Gainel and Condi, this is so funny now, coming in a little bit circle, full circle there. When I was on her, we did a, I did her in the middle podcast and then she said she wanted to, and we kept going and we did an Instagram live uh-huh. and she wanted me to cover like, what was it? Like mental health, depression, and there was another four pillars and then narcissism. And I like, they didn't all go together. And we got about 10 minutes left. And then she's like, okay, let's talk narcissism. And I kind of felt like, oh, I don't think I can do it in 10 yeah, minutes. Yeah. <laughs> and in preparation, I had found this other article that I really liked. And it had this quote that talked about narcissism. And so I kind of feel like it goes along with this definition of the pathological defensive narcissism. But it said like uh, narcissism or emotional immaturity is coming from a place of that any disagreement with somebody, it feels like criticism And so then that person will lash out and do anything to defend their fragile ego. Hmm. And so that night after the Gainal and Condi interview, and after reading that quote, I was on a walk with my wife and we were walking our dogs and I was talking about something with my son. And I said, I need to tell him, I need to tell Jake this. My wife just said, I don't know if I would. And I honestly, I I remember I stopped us. We were by this mailbox and I said, 
okay, this is funny because I said, I just said this quote on, on this Gamelin episode earlier today where I said, the narcissist or emotionally immature person, when someone just goes as far as to disagree, they feel like they're being criticized. And I said, so if I pause right there, if I'm being honest, you just saying, I wouldn't say that to Jake. I can honestly make a connection of me saying, wow, you think I'm a bad dad and a horrible husband. <laughs> like that's, yeah. that's pretty lame of me. There's right? some good self-awareness there, Tony. Oh, yeah. but then I said, so I am noticing that I want to lash out and defend my fragile ego. How? How about gaslighting? That would be a fun one. And I feel like in my more emotionally mature days, and this is where all I can do is take ownership of this. And I, and I hope this resonates with people and is, is that I have, there have been times where I've said, okay, well, I was talking to some other people and they think I'm right. Or I would even as a therapist say, oh, I was just reading an article yeah. that said that what I'm doing is the right yeah, thing. I read the, the book. People that the research totally. is there. And honestly, here's the emotional immaturity piece, Kurt. This is so crazy. And I feel like I feel like these are the stories I get people that are when going back to why, what do I get when people are coming in on my couch? I'll share a story like this and then I'll have somebody reach out to me and say, ooh, when you gave that example, I do this. Yeah, yeah. Where then I, you know, so right now I know I would have said in the past when I was more emotionally immature and not coming from a healthy ego that I know I would have said that, oh, you know, I was reading a book, you know, like the Nurture Heart Approach and it was talking about how you need to have this kind of conversation with your son. But I mean, if that's what you think I shouldn't, then okay. I mean, I guess I won't, right? I just broke my fourth pillar. I just became emotionally immature. I just gaslit yeah. and all those things because- I felt like she was attacking me Yeah. when in reality, she has an opinion. I have an opinion. And you're so just you're talking. Coming, just talking. Yeah. So from an emotional mature standpoint, you know, now if I get into my framework, my four pillars, pillar one, she's not trying to hurt me or yeah. there's a reason why she said that. My second pillar is I cannot put off the vibe energy or even say, okay, that's ridiculous or I don't believe you. Even if I feel like it yeah. is. And then my third pillar is like questions before comments. So then in that one, then after I worked through this with her, I said, okay, well, tell me, tell me more, like take me on your train of thought. Why do you feel like that wouldn't be something that would be a benefit to say to Jake? And she mentioned some things and and I was so grateful that I, I asked before I commented because the things she said were, she didn't know that I'd already had a different conversation with him. So then I was able to stay present. My fourth pillar is not go into a victim mindset or mentality. I could have heard her. I could have assumed good intentions, not told her that's ridiculous, said, tell me more. And I still could have said, okay, whatever. I guess my opinion doesn't matter. I'm just a walking paycheck and I'll just keep doing, you know, because then I want her to come rescue yeah. me. So in that scenario, then I was like, oh man, thank you so much for sharing that with me because that makes a lot of sense. I realized that you weren't aware that Jake and I had already had this other conversation. And so I can understand why if you didn't know that, it probably felt like I was coming out of nowhere, you know? Yeah. So isn't that crazy? That yeah. one moment being aware of what emotional immaturity looks like, protecting my fragile ego, what ways I would do that and all of that is is an absolute just nightmare for communication or connection with another yeah. individual. Yeah, I love talking about this concept of narcissism with these terms like ego and emotional emotional maturity, things like that because yeah. it's it's more palpable. Like I can relate to that more. So let's just bring in this caricature of the the church leader who yeah. is a narcissist, and okay. maybe he maybe we start with or is extremely emotional. Oh, okay, sorry, I forgot to talk about our older brother Jesus. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So skip over I think it was probably, and actually I know you've interviewed her and I, I really, I'm a, I really love her, Jody Moore. Oh yeah. So I was on her podcast, like 30 episodes into mine and being on, being on hers and her on mine really gave it a huge boost yeah. at the time. She's like the Oprah of our community. Well, and what was super <laughs> funny about that is she was so nice and she, she was thanking me because I'm a therapist and having a life coach on. And that was where I feel like, oh, I wasn't aware that I was supposed to be uh, like, think I'm better than yeah. a life coach yeah. or whatever. Like they're the Which others, I, right? Yeah. Right. So I was like, oh, but your information is really good. Uh -huh. So I think we can be differentiated and we can like pull from each other. Yeah. But in that interview, I still remember this where that's just funny. 
I can talk about another concept of narcissism in a second that is mind blowing, Kurt, called confabulation. Because I realize I'm about to possibly confabulate. So, because I think that this was my interview with her, but there's a chance it wasn't. But I think it was because okay. she had me talk about narcissism, and I said, and I didn't, I didn't go into all this stuff about ego because I didn't really have that understanding at that time. But I said that I did talk about ego, and I said, you know, Jesus, Buddha, Gandhi, they had ego because if they didn't have a, an inflated sense of self or ego then they never would have put themselves out there to change the world. Yeah. So then when I came back to this definition of healthy ego versus pathological defensive narcissism, yeah, Jesus had a healthy ego because it was based off of literal, like amazing real life experiences. I mean, he, well, he knew what he was talking well, about. Well, and I would, I've framed it this way that like we often think about, we put like Jesus in the same category as like Harry Potter. Like he just had magic and like leprosy would disappear before their eyes. But no, there's no like no. Harry Potter magic happening. What it is is that Christ has a full, complete understanding of his identity or yeah. his ego. Healthy, healthy ego. Yeah, that's like the power of it. So, right? so then when you go back to what, like what you said about the uh, the imposter syndrome or kicking in, or so the more I feel passionate and put out the content I do, I'm not going to put out content that I am just doing because it's the checkbox. Right. So it's going to be coming from a place of healthy ego. Now, along with healthy ego needs to be the concept that I also don't know what I don't know and I need to make room for that. So this concept, for example, of this uh, concept of this thing called confabulation is a huge part of narcissism or emotional immaturity that I just became aware of about two months ago. And now I'm obsessed with it. And so but what I love is that when the first person who said, hey, have you heard of confabulation? Here's an article to read. I mean, it was somebody in my women's narcissist uh, Facebook group, private Facebook group. And I know that five years ago, I might have said, oh, yeah, I'm familiar with that because I, of course I am. I'm the expert. <laughs> But instead, I was like, oh my gosh, I've never heard of this. Uh -huh. And then I made a post in there where I said, where, where has this been? And in a quick nutshell, Kurt, what is wild is, it, so look at the way memory works. And none of us have perfect memory. So memory is fragmented. But in just normal situations, our brain can't handle fragmented memory. So if I'm remembering a story of maybe the first time we met, I might say, yeah, I remember you were wearing that, uh, that striped shirt. And you're like, oh, I don't own a striped shirt. I think I was wearing a polo shirt. I'm like, okay, anyway. Or wore the striped shirt the fourth time we met. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so, and that's normal. So with narcissism or severe emotional immaturity, this concept of confabulation is they have to fill in the gaps with not just this minutia or pedestrian information, but in the, oh, and remember how right I was and you were wrong? And it has to be this continually putting themselves in a one-up position mm -hmm. or, and so that's why with somebody that's really emotionally immature, narcissistic, it's odd that sometimes they will have this just incredible memory of a situation that put them in the hero's role mm -hmm. or the victim state and that you don't remember it that way because you're pretty confident that it didn't happen that way, but they needed it to happen that way to fit their worldview. So, and, and this is a human experience, right? Not just yeah. narcissism per se, but maybe it's inflated, but if I think back to my time, maybe, you know, those five years serving as bishop, my mind is going to go to those stories and instances yes. where I was in the hero role, right? Like I had this conversation, I can tell it, then I said this, then she said this, oh, and then exactly. problems were solved. She came back to church, right? We typically go there, our brain organizes yes. it that way, right? So, and what's funny is I can remember one of the earlier couples that I had that where I first was really understanding narcissism and the guy, I remember the wife at, at some point said to me, so the stories he just told you about his high school, let's just pretend it was a high school sports career so that I'm not outing anyone, even though it was so long ago, because yeah. it wasn't exactly that. But she said, that was literally my experience. That was my, he did not do those things. And she said, but we've talked about the stories for so long that then the story started to slowly morph into, they were his stories to the point where now he tells those as they were his stories. 
And when I interject, then he makes me feel like ridiculous about that, Hmm. that that never happened. And then the scary part about confabulation is then to the emotionally mature narcissist, then that has to be the narrative. So then the brain quickly makes that the narrative because they've been confabulating since childhood because it could not be that they are wrong. It had to be that you were you were wrong. Because it's a protective mechanism. It's a protective mechanism. Uh And so that's why when you were truly arguing with the true narcissist where the gaslighting will make you feel crazy and then ironically, it makes them feel even more empowered because they really believe. I feel like, uh, why do I not want to say that? But, uh, you know, let's pretend that a famous athlete was got away with murder years ago. And now... Which has happened. <laughs> which has happened. A few and times. Let's just pretend that then you could go and do a, a functional brain scan or a polygraph on that person and they will pass it because they, to them, they have confabulated that they did not do that. And they really are looking for the real killer. <laughs> oh, they are, and that's the, the crazy thing about confabulation is that, that we don't understand it, but to that person... They've been confabulating since childhood, yeah. so they could not have done that because they're this famed athlete that yeah. everybody loved. So bring it back to like the, our leadership oh, yes. caricature. Yes. So, so the so leader, then, the narcissistic leader, what is happening there? But, but I hope that people listening or what you can see right now too is if you go back to that pathological defensive narcissism concept versus healthy ego is that if someone feels like they have to know, like they are required to be in this position of authority to be able to help others, but in the, their heart of hearts, they aren't really sure of what to do. And then somebody says, what do you do in this situation? So from a healthy ego, the answer can be, I don't know. Let's find out. Or yeah. Well, yeah. Absolutely. But from a pathological defensive narcissism, it can be, well, I think you should do this. And this is where I feel like I, sometimes I joke, I joke with friends when I talk about, because you know, you're one of my favorite people. <laughs> and I think, man, if I ever get booted out of the, you know, I've booted off LDS, uh, <laughs> leading saints, I'm going to miss Kurt, right? <laughs> so I don't want to say anything too controversial. Like I'm kind of, okay, all right, right? Yeah. cause this is the part where I feel like it's the thing where if this is where I feel like, you know, we used to call it even when I worked for the church, uh, the pulling the Holy ghost card or pulling yeah. the revelation card or pulling the, well, I'm the Bishop card. And which the, I think here's the part that is sticky between a healthy ego and pathological defensive narcissism. And where does the spirit come into play? Cause if a Bishop really feels like, man, I don't know, but let me pray about it. Or I really feel impressed that mm-hmm. it might be a good idea for this. But I'm just, and look, I did the differentiation thing with my hand, right? But I'm just saying, this is what I think could help. Yeah. But you you have agency, you have your own experience and I'm just trying my best. Like, I feel like that, oh, I want to talk to that bishop. Yeah. Because that's saying like, hey, I, I am in a position. I realize I am, I've been set apart. I've had some pretty amazing experiences. I have yet to talk to a bishop that hasn't had some like, wow, this happened. Like, that's amazing. But in this situation, I wasn't really sure what to do, you know? Mm-hmm. And so I feel like that's the thing where with healthy ego is coming from this place of based on real life experiences. Yeah, I've offered some advice. I've offered some suggestions and this is what worked for me. And I feel like I'm, I'm trying to pay attention to when, when is this real? Like, do I really feel like I know the difference between real revelation and versus a, I think this is probably a good idea. And can I be that vulnerable and offer that to somebody? Yeah. Or do I, am I coming from more of an emotionally immature, AKA narcissistic, you know, unhealthy ego position of saying, no, I think you need to do this and I'm the bishop. Yeah. And you know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. So, uh, yeah, you, yeah, you make, you pretty that up. Okay. <laughs> so I'm just thinking like when we have that bishop, we're just like maybe, or the leader, uh, the bishop's position is easy to pick on. Yeah. And they're difficult to work with, or they act like they know it all, mm-hmm. or they don't want any feedback, or they're abrasive, or, and we think, I think this person's narcissistic, a narcissist. Obviously, we don't, we probably shouldn't just throw that around first, oh, first rule. And then it never works by the way, because people always say, when do I tell them that the narcissist, I'm like, <laughs> uh, the number one answer never. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's great. 
but we can then reframe it of like, oh, this person's, these are very difficult interactions with them to deal with, but this is actually a protective mechanism for them. Bless their hearts. I don't know what they've done with what they've done. Pillar one. That's why pillar one for life, Kurt. Yeah. Right. Assume the best intentions. People are trying their best. They're trying their best. Yeah. Yeah. And now we can reframe it. So, but at the end of the day, like, like you said, we can't like set an appointment with the bishop and be like, Hey, I'm here to, I'm here to let you know. I don't know if anybody's told you this, but you're a narcissist. Like that won't work, right? So what do we do with a narcissist? Do we wait it out? Is there something, is there a different approach that we can do when they, when we recognize these protective mechanisms they're using? So here's what's so hard about this. And I didn't even think that we were going down this, I, I'm acting dramatic. I didn't think we were going to talk about solutions. <laughs> Kirk, you never do. You always talk about solutions. I don't. Because what's so difficult here is the challenge is that now we go back to that. We are looking for external validation that we often, I love talking about accountability where when somebody will say to me, well, what do you think I should do? And I used to tell them and now I realize, oh, no, I don't ask me. I mean, I can offer my opinion. I can share clinical data. I can offer my anecdotal experiences from 20 years of counseling. But if you're saying to me, should I divorce this person? And if I'm, am I going to step into that trap? Because if I say, I think you should. Now, if they're like, well, he said, and now they almost don't have to take ownership of something themselves. So when we are looking for external validation to make ourselves whole or to feel right, that is a dangerous game. And I don't think I've, we haven't interviewed in a while, right? So I, I had this experience. <laughs> so I hurt my, you know, I, I did 20, 25 years of ultra marathon running, 100, 150 races of, I don't know, marathons and a dozen of hundred miles or more. Uh-huh. And I would do these fundraisers and I'd run around track for 24 hours. And that was my livelihood or not livelihood. That was my life, my identity. And then playing basketball, I tear my meniscus in a knee. And so then it's been a few years now and I haven't been able to do the ultra running thing, but I'm just grateful I can put some miles on. And there was a time, it was a few months ago, and I was really looking at the concepts of external validation or that's how we gain our sense of self. Mm -hmm. And I realized I'd had a decent run. I'd come home from work and I was really not feeling it. And so I went on a run and it was one of these times where I couldn't listen to a podcast. I couldn't listen to an audiobook. I didn't want to listen to music. And that's very rare. And it wasn't the cool Disney moment where I got in touch with my breath and I felt the footsteps. (laughs) It just kind of was a a crummy run, Uh but I finished it and I looked and the time was better than it had been since like my meniscus uh, injury. And so I was going inside and I realized, oh, this is what external validation versus internal validation looks like. I knew my time and I thought, I feel good about that. Like I'm happy with that time. Because my experience was, here's what I did for 25 years. Here's how I got external validation. Here's was part of my sense of self. I didn't think I'd ever run like this again. So I was happy. But I was walking in and I knew my wife would say, how was your run? And it, I, would, I had bettered my best time since the knee injury by, uh, it wasn't, I mean, it was like a few seconds a mile. Mm-hmm. So I realized if I told her, oh, I ran faster than I ever have by a couple of seconds. Now I'm putting the my happiness or into her hand. Yeah. So she would have said, switched it, right? Yeah. So if she would have said, Oh, that's cool. Then I would have said, that's all, you know? So if I was looking for external validation to make me feel better, then now I get to say, she doesn't even care. And something's wrong with me. Yeah. So when we're coming at things from internal validation. I was really excited about what I had just done. So now I'm having a shared experience with my wife. Now, if she says, how fast is your run? I'm not trying to read. Okay. Well, you didn't say the right thing to make me feel better. Yeah. Like that's the thing with external validation. So to tie it. So if I know I'm okay, then I go into a conversation. And now if the person tells me that I don't think that you're okay, or I don't think that was very cool, then I can say, oh yeah, I wasn't, I w- that wasn't what I was looking for. I, w- I would just wanted to share an experience with you. 
And I wanted to understand your experience and that's where we can get differentiation and what can I pull from this person? So the reason I go on that tangent is the difficult thing about going into a bishop's office is often we are looking for external validation. So we feel bad about what we've done. And so we're saying, hey, I don't feel very good about what I've done. Can you make me feel better? And that's where I say that when you look at it from that lens, I jokingly say, like most things, maybe too many jokes, (laughs) but I say, if you're looking for just external validation when you're asking someone else their opinion, you got about a five to 10% chance they're going to say the right thing and make you go, oh, okay. The rest of it, you're going to think, oh, dang, they don't really like me and I'm a big piece of garbage. So if you come from it from, okay, I this is where I want the... I'm just a human being going through life, trying my best, but this thing happened. You know, that's why I still don't even like the word sin. I'm sorry. I don't, right? This behavior happened. I don't like it. I'd like to get rid of it, please. I need help. I'm going to go into my bishop's office, but if I'm doing the, hey, so I don't like the way I feel about this. What do you think? If he says, say, you know, a couple of prayers and you're good, then I get to say, hey, that worked. Like that was the thing I wanted to hear. So now I'm good. I don't have to do anything about it. I just got told I'm good. But if I'm going in there saying, I'm okay but I need help. So I'm not looking for external validation. I'm looking for a shared experience. I'm looking for connection. I'm looking for somebody that I feel like has been set apart and called, you know, maybe they got a little extra juice. You know, maybe they're focusing a little more on the scriptures. They got a couple of ideas Uh that I don't. So now I'd love, I'd love their opinion. That would be really nice. I mean, I know it's more than that, but do you see where I'm going with that? So I feel like the, and this goes back to, I think this is one of the tangents that I missed earlier is I haven't talked about this out loud. I love this. Kurt Frankham exclusive here. Oh boy. Are you ready? Here we go. <laughs> but I wonder at times, even the concepts of confession, because I'll have people that will go confess about, again, or setbacks with pornography, and then their bishop will tell them, oh, don't forget you're a really bad person. And then they're saying, why do I keep doing this? Yeah. You know, where they're saying, but I know I'm supposed to, and I can't, and it makes me worse. And, and that means I'm a horrible person. And I'm sitting there like, whoa, slow your roll there, buddy. You know, you're good. What helps you? And where do you feel closer to God? And so, and I know that can feel like controversial of, oh, Tony's saying, don't talk to your bishop, you know, but I feel like, oh, if you know that you've now started to make progress and traction in your road to recovery of turning to pornography as an unhealthy coping mechanism, then is that something that you feel I must go and confess? Because am I just, do I feel bad about it? So I'm just simply wanting that person to make me feel better or am I going at it and I'm saying, hey, I'm struggling and I need all the tools I can. So I'm coming to you, bishop, and I'm saying, I would love I mean, yeah, confession, or I would love your thoughts. But then if it's something where, oh, I've done the old make me feel bad thing again. So I appreciate that. Now, if I'm talking about differentiation and I go back to that concept of, I don't have to tell him, he doesn't understand what he's talking about. And I don't have to defend myself and say, how dare you? You know, you don't know what you're talking about. You don't understand me. If I'm going in there, like I'm a child of God, this is my journey. I do have my agency. I have personal revelation. I'm starting to learn more about who I am as a child of God, my own talents, my own abilities. Here's how I feel closer of a connection to God. Then if that bishop's saying, hey, don't forget, it's really bad and you should stop. Then I can say, oh man, thank you, Bishop. I do appreciate yeah. that. But you know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. Like that, you're, that's a, from a place of a really healthy ego as well. Yeah, right? exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And you know, you talk about this dichotomy of uh, internal validation, external, external validation. validation. Like, yeah. And we're born with a sense of like, I need to- I need you, external validation. Because we're like, I've, I've just discovered I'm a thing. Like yep, I, I'm and, a kid. And I, I don't know loved. what I need. I don't know who I am. And so, so that I validation helps remind us, oh yeah, remember you're a thing? Like, oh yeah, I want, because that helps me feel worth and purpose, right? Yeah. And then, but as, if we keep in that lane going forward, it, it uh, begins it becomes, to go grow wild. Exactly. Right? And that's where I feel like, you know, and I say this, I've been saying this a lot lately, especially in the marriage course and things where Sue Johnson, 
from the founder of Emotionally Focused Therapy says we're designed to deal with emotion in concert with another human. And so I feel like that is about attachment, but Mm -hmm. it's also about becoming emotionally mature. So if I only come into a relationship with my experiences, which is all we come into, and now I am emotionally immature, I'm needing that external validation, you know, all those things that we do because we do them. This is why I say it isn't natural to become emotionally mature together. But we can, and that's the whole goal that we're, I feel like, yeah, we're, we're getting together so we can procreate and replenish the earth, you know, and be able to afford a minivan. Like, I feel like that though, that's one of those things, but I feel like really it's about, I need to be able to express my experience because that's the only thing I know. And I need a safe person that I can understand their experience. And that way from a differentiated place, I can take a little bit from them. They can take a little bit from me. And now we're going to grow. We're going to become differentiated. And now we can pass that on to our kid. Now our kid's going to be that much better than our situation. But now you can see where that emotional immaturity of if I'm like an emotionally immature narcissistic jerk to my own kid. And I'm like, yeah, I used to be faster than you were, son. You know, okay, great, dad. Right. But now I've just created this kid that feels like, oh man, I'm I'm not good. Now I got to go turn down healthy coping mechanisms or I'm going to try to find somebody to validate me. You can see how that pattern just keeps continuing. Yeah. And so we got to break that cycle at some point, And that is doing the work to become more emotionally mature, needing that external validation, knowing that we're okay and having these shared experiences. And then we don't need to then tell our kids that we were the most, I could throw a football over that mountain, you know, to quote Uncle Rico from <laughs> Napoleon Dynamite. Instead, it's like, man, champ, how far can you throw the football? Yeah. yeah <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah. So what I'm learning, like going back to our caricature that we're hanging these principles on that, that caricature of the narcissistic church leader. Like, what do we do with that? What I'm learning here is that there's really not a lot we can do. And so that's maybe where healthy boundaries come in. You're just yeah, saying like, I like that. okay, he's, he's my bishop. Well, you know, she's my release study president. I could move. Like that's, that's a boundary I could set. Or I could maybe just come here and do my thing and, you know, connect with, with God and Jesus in, in my way. And, and if they ask me to serve, I, I can say no. You know, yeah. I'm like, actually, I'm, I can't be on the ward council, you know, for that's, whatever yes. reason, right? Yeah. And, and, you know, you don't want to necessarily completely lie per se, but just saying, I, I just don't think we'd work well together. And this is just a boundary. That's, saying, that's, yeah. that's healthy. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I don't think we work well with each other and uh, maybe just pick somebody else, but I, I will not be available for that. And what's funny about that is what did we grow up hearing all the time? You don't say no to yeah. a calling. I was five right. years in a bishopric. You were a bishop. I mean, I remember the first person that told me, no, thank you. And I thought, what? Yeah. I just called you like I'm yeah. wearing the suit. I got the like, come on. Here's the, my authority card. Exactly. Did I not put and, they, and they said, oh, yeah, I, I would rather not do that. And now I look back on that person and I think, oh, the more yeah. I got to know that person, they were really comfortable with themselves. And yeah. they were one of those people that, you know, go back to that example of if I was struggling, who would I want to go talk to? Yeah. I mean, I'm about to feel bad. <laughs> not my home teacher. I mean, you know, yeah, yeah, but, yeah. but the person that, that I would go talk to this person. But when I have these emails exchanges with people who are like, mm-hmm. oh, if you only met my bishop, then the great, he's the king of narcissists or whatever. Like I try to remind them of that boundary concepts. Do you know, and this happened to me personally, that I had this interaction and actually called my friend Steve. We're actually sitting in his office. Oh. And uh, he said, do you know, you don't have to go talk to that person. Then it feels like you do because yeah. that's the, the tradition you come from. Yeah. You actually don't have to go there. And I was like, and I just felt like the swell of empowerment of like, oh yeah, like I am a independent body that can set boundaries and yeah. that, to protect me and, and to be safe. Right. Yeah. And so at the end of the day, like to deal with the narcissistic leader is you set boundaries and you don't need them to be in your life. And, but I need to get my temple recommended from them. Well, maybe you need to have some conversations with the state president or with Absolutely. others, or you could move like, and some people do move, you yeah, know, and it's messy and it's not like, not. Kurt, I need the three-point plan about how this just gets resolved by next Sunday. And there's not. You just 
you know, re- recognize that. And I think as you've articulated these concepts, it's helpful just to be like, oh, now I have like a box to put him in. He's not this raging oh, yes. psychopath. Right. And so, why so, and first of all, I'm being like very sincere when I say I am so grateful that we are hit, hit, talking about this Good. today. Like, I feel like honestly, this, I just am grateful for the platform that you put out there. I'm like going to get emotional, right? <laughs> because I just feel like this is the stuff that is just making people feel more and more of the what's wrong with me and nothing is wrong with you as an individual. You're just trying to figure this out as everybody else is. Yeah. And so even the people that are going to hear this and say, oh my gosh, I can't believe Tony and Kurt are saying that you, you are putting your bishop in a box or whatever. But man, I go so big. Again, atonement, one of my favorite things. And it is my favorite thing. And then all these things will be for your good. And that is that concept, that scripture, that that is so true. So that then you, this is your experience on earth, your growing process. So if you are learning that putting yourself in this position, looking for external validation and understanding this person in front of you is trying their best, but it doesn't make you feel closer to God, yeah. then that's okay to then say, I'm going to not continue on this path. And I feel like a lot of the faith crisis, a lot of the faith journey people I'm working with right now talk so much about that they don't feel good at church, that it's not a positive experience. And I feel like so much of that is because as they are having their own experiences, as they're having different beliefs, as they're experiencing things and interacting with people and and they're starting to feel like, oh my gosh, this is I'm starting to separate from my culture. Yeah. That then they feel like what's wrong with me. And then they start to then yeah. hear more yeah. and more of the people that are saying, here's well, here's how you should feel and here's what you should think. And that is where I feel like the same principle applies there. It's like, man, they're just trying their best. And ultimately I can be differentiated and say, oh yeah, I disagree with that. I mean, I got, I've been asked to give a couple of talks on things and I've just straight up said, oh no, I can't do that one. Like I don't, I don't vibe with that. Like that's, I don't believe that. Mm -hmm. And it's so interesting to see somebody say, well then, but I'm asking you to. Right. And I was like, oh yeah, no, I appreciate that. Like you, you are awesome. Yeah. I know you, you know. Yeah. It can sound like we're being dismissive, but it's like, no, we're learning to step into our healthy ego, become our best version of ourselves. Mm-hmm. And that's where I say, man, if anything is going to let your light so shine so that others around you will feel God or know God, it's learning that we're all children of God with their own different experiences and people are just trying their best. And I feel like that is the thing that the more that I'm dealing with people that are struggling with their faith or struggling with their marriage or struggling with who they are, turning to coping mechanisms, we got to be able to step outside of our own ego and just look at that. Oh, this is how I'm showing up in this experience based on all these things that have led me to that moment. That's interesting. Yeah. I'm still good. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. I don't yeah. know. What are you feeling, Kurt? Well, I'm feeling is uh, we should wrap up because if we don't, my wife will be mad and she won't offer me that external validation that I need. I know what you're saying. So. I feel invalidated now, Kurt. <laughs> yeah. Me. And so I'm going to invalidate like, yeah. you thank so you. that I can get the validation I need. No, but thank you. But I mean, this is I cool. Really, this was a great just, discussion. Oh, I'm so grateful to be able I to I told you this. we should never plan these things. No, we shouldn't. And it's interesting, even on that note, and then we will absolutely wrap it up. I had reached out, you know, and asked for some, told some people that I was going to be talking about this topic. And so it was interesting because I did receive, I mean, I've got 30, maybe 20, 25 page I call it narcissistic math. It is funny. It's like, no, I don't need to bolster that up. I got a lot of feedback from people that get, did give me tons of those experiences of my narcissistic bishop or my narcissistic husband or my narcissistic wife or those sort of things. And the hard thing is that there are people listening to this that maybe aren't experiencing that, that are going to feel like, oh, okay, again, calm down, you guys. But the people that are experiencing it, I mean, I just want them to know, I hope that they feel heard and understood. And I know that it isn't as easy as what Kurt and I are even laying out. Right. Because a lot of the experiences I have are not, they're not good. I mean, they're, they're people that are feeling like they don't matter and they've lost their sense of self and they're the, the emotionally immature person in their life is the one getting rewarded, is getting praised because, you know, some people can look and say that, boy, we run quite a 
some people say like a, a, it can be a bit of a breeding ground for the emotionally immature person to rise through the ranks because it's the person that is seeking the external validation, you know, that then makes those uh, people around them feel like they are validated. I feel like now I'm making no sense, but I, you know, but I feel like it can be a situation where people that seem like they are the least empathetic and the ones who are just saying, this is what you need to do oftentimes do rise into these positions of authority. And so I know that that can be that that's something I hear often. And yeah. that's where people will feel like, well, then God must not care about me. And I feel like this yes. is where I want to say, Hey, uh, that agency thing is, it's real. And so people are put on earth and they have the agency and that's where I'm still going to double down on the atonement at the end of the day. And I feel like, you know, my joke when I end almost everything I talk about, so maybe this is how I end, right? Is that I feel like the atonement as a therapist is just, it's become so real because every single person I've dealt with in front of me is dealing with a lot of stuff. I mean, we are all dealing with a lot of things. So we are all trying our best and none of us really know what the other person's been going through. And none of us know what other uh, anybody else's experience is because how would they? Because yeah. we're the only ones that know how we feel, think, all those things that we do. And so that's where I feel like, okay, the atonement, it has to be real because it's like we are all trying our best. None of us are going to get it exactly right. So thank goodness somebody else has uh, said, I got gotcha. you. And so then that's where I always say that I feel like I'm so confident of this, Kurt. Here's healthy ego, even though I know that I don't know this. But when, uh, when, we, when we reach the pearly gates and, you know, I feel like people often say, man, I'm going to feel like I want to hide my eyes and I'm, I'm Jesus can see right through me and he's going to know all the things I've done. I feel like, oh no, none of that is the way it's going to happen. I feel like by the time you try to even look up, he's got you wrapped in an embrace and he's saying, man, you did great. That whole agency thing sounded like a great idea in the pre-existence. I really thought that was going to work a lot easier than it did, you know, or than it was going to, but you, you did great. So I feel like everybody's just got their agency. They're trying their best and you know, so we, the ultimate goal is to find your sense of self, who you are, know you're a child of God, know you, you are loved, you are lovable. And then the more you show up that way, confident, you're still going to get invalidated by people that are going through their own experience, but you're going to start to feel closer and closer to God, which is going to get to that place of where when somebody's then trying to tell you what you're, think, you're supposed to think, feel, or do, that then you're going to be able to just absolutely have empathy and compassion for them and bless their heart. So I don't know. Amen, brother. And I want to quickly plug that... Uh Man, I've been going through your magnet, magnetic marriage course. Yeah. If people are looking for a resource there, tonyoverbay.com. Yeah, yeah, you can find some good, there. And, yeah. and this, these show notes are going to be full of links. And if we're missing a link, you email me and make sure, obviously, the, the path back for uh, pornography. Yeah, the path back recovery. Okay. Yeah, go to tonyoverbay.com and uh, click on my courses. The path back, I don't give that enough. Uh, I'm a horrible uh, salesman um, because <laughs> I don't want people to feel like I'm a salesman. Uh-huh. But man, I really feel like ego? that. Yeah, for real. But I feel like I need to step into my healthy ego and say, oh, it's changing lives. It's tough notch, so, right. And yeah. uh, if people in the virtual couch world are listening and they are, they yeah. want to check out Leading Saints, you can amazing work. search for the podcast, same place you're listening to this one. And if you're yeah. not a Latter-day Saint, you're probably not going to like it too much. But hey, come on over. I don't know about that. I, I, did, uh, a bonus, I did a bonus <laughs> episode of uh, that you interviewed me and it was talking about acceptance and commitment therapy and the gospel. Right. And that's one I send out to a lot of people because right. I feel like it's pretty, yeah, yeah. vibe. And I always, I love ACT and the book, yeah. um, why can't I remember the title? Uh, Confidence Gap. Confidence Gap. If you want to really so dive good. in, good like introduction to it. And I still refer back to that like yeah. every day in these. Kurt, these you, thank you for all the work you do. Oh, it's, it's I'll go on. Okay, <laughs> feed, that, feed that ego. <laughs> no, it's great. <laughs> <laughs> All right, man. Well, and I'd love to get feedback either from your audience yeah. or mine of like, what did you think about this of me and Tony just sitting down? We just geek out about some concepts and yeah, we, we wandered for a bit at times, but that's all right. You know, we'd love so did Jesus in the desert. <laughs> he made it back. I think I didn't uh, read all my scriptures, but and we'll end on that. There it okay. is.
That concludes this episode, this conversation with Tony and I. I hope you enjoyed that. And we, I'm going to encourage my team of editors that go through this and listen to it and create the show notes to really dig in and uh, get the good solid list of show notes for everything we talked about, the links, the podcast, the trainings, the online courses, all that stuff. You can go to the show notes. If we're missing one or if we mention something that you do not find in the show notes, go to leadingsaints.org slash contact and let me know. And remember, leadingsaints.org slash 14 to get additional content by Tony Overbay in our core leader library. Free for 14 days. It's phenomenal. Go check it out. Leadingsaints.org slash 14. It came as a result of the position of leadership which was imposed upon us by the God of heaven who brought forth a restoration of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when the declaration was made concerning the own and only true and living church upon the face of the earth, we were immediately put in a position of loneliness, the loneliness of leadership from which we cannot shrink nor run away and to which we must face up with boldness and courage and ability.